morning. It's a blessing to be with you again. Uh, I wanted to pick up on uh, what Garrett taught last week. He taught on the hope. And this morning I wanted to share some things uh, on my heart regarding that. And this really is more of a sharing than a teaching. As people would uh, say who know me well, I, I talk more than I teach. But sometimes in all that discussion, there might be something worth taking away, and I pray that's the case today. Um, I want to uh, think about something with you. Some of you might have been around in 1968 and conscious enough to remember this. Some of you weren't, but at the end of 1968, which, by the way, if there was any year that could rival 2020 in terms of its kind of insanity, 1968 would be high on the list. At the end of that year, three men were in a capsule and they were circumventing the moon for the very first time in the history of the planet. And the world was watching and they saw something that no human beings had ever seen before. And that was the earth rise. When the, pres when the uh, astronaut Bill Anders focused his camera from, from the orbit of the moon, he caught the earth in its rise. And it's a very, very famous photograph now. You've seen it, I'm sure. And imagine, you know, for the first time, human beings beholding the beauty of the Earth from outer space. Astronauts have had what's called uh, the overview effect, a term coined by a guy named Frank White, who was a psychologist, but had a specialty in dealing with, um, with astronauts. And he interviewed astronauts extensively when they would come back from space. And he described something he called the overview effect. Now, Frank was not much of a believer, uh, and so he tried to frame it in kind of psychological terms. But what the astronauts themselves described was this overwhelming emotion and feeling of awe and even divinity. Uh, some of them came home, one in particular came home and became a minister. He was so profoundly affected by what was called the overview effect by Frank White. And Nick Hag was an astronaut who went to the International Space Station, and he described what it's like. He said when he was out on a spacewalk and he was looking at the Earth from out there, and he said it was just there's many emotions, and the beauty of it just strikes you so deeply. But he said the prime emotion he came away with was stewardship. And I thought, wow, beautiful, man. It's like here's a human being who innately understands that the way God designed human beings that we are to be stewards of God's good creation. The beauty of the earth from space is awe-inspiring. It's, but it's not a view we get when we're here on the ground, right? Uh, we have to try to see what's going on from a, a very distant place in order to get that, capture that kind of beauty and that emotion. And with regarding to our, our hope, I mean, it's the same thing. If we don't understand with some clarity how to view our hope, then it isn't going to anchor our soul. And we're fighting against something here, that whether you're aware of it or not, for a couple hundred years, really since the 17th or 18th century, for sure. The Christian church has really been uh, thinking about the future with regard to Christianity and Christians uh, from the view that when we die, we leave and we go to heaven. We depart the earth. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. You know, the angels beckon me from heaven's open door. 
and I'm not at home in this world anymore. And my destiny, therefore, is to spring you know, free of this corrupted body and this fallen world and go into heaven. And that is our hope, but it's not. It is not our hope scripturally. You won't find that in the Bible. You know where you'll find that? Plato. That was how Plato described human beings after they died, that we would, our souls would escape this physical encasement that prevented us from the perfection that exists in heaven. And we would join that perfection in our spiritual disembodied form and live forever in that perfection. If that sounds vaguely familiar, that's because that's really how Christians have often thought of their destiny. And the Bible says something quite different. And the way we know this is it's simply we read the scriptures. And when God talks about in the original intention what he had in mind for human beings, which would have gone on, by the way, was for us to be stewards and have rulership and dominion over this good, good earth. The beauty of earth must have been astounding in paradise. It, it had to be just remarkable. And, and think about how God designed the human eye the human ear, the nose, the senses, to interact with the beauty of our environment, and it was so pleasing to us. He called it good, 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 very good. So even on the physical level, we were immersed in God's goodness. But even more than that, it says that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. He dwelled with human beings on earth. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. The two were both created at the same time. Sometimes people forget that. Heaven and earth were both created at the same time because they were designed to be connected. And the connection point was, was a human being who stood there as a steward over God's good creation, a ruler and a priest, and also one who would then bring the sum of all praises of creation back to God. The connection of heaven and earth was the intention. But when man fell, lost the connection. Now man is earthbound. It has no connection. But did God depart from him and say, I, have no, I want nothing to do with you? No, he actually immediately lovingly said, you can't stay here lest you eat of the tree of you know, life and live forever in your fallen state. So he put them out, but he immediately gave them a way back where he could dwell for in, in a very, very small way at the altar of sacrifice. And he gave him a, a way for, I can you come to me with this sacrifice, I can have a moment with you where I accept that sacrifice. I believe the acceptable sacrifice at the time and how Cain and Abel both saw it was fire from heaven came and accepted the sacrifice. We see that in the Old Testament. So he, he provisioned a way for he so he could dwell with us. And that didn't end. And you see it throughout the Bible, God wanting to dwell with people when he came uh, to Abraham, and he gave him the promise of, of a life that's going to spring from death entombed in Sarah's womb will bring forth a life called Isaac. And in him, all nations will be blessed. In him, that seed have I called all nations to be blessed by me. Um, and so, he, you know, he gave Abraham a way of having God dwell with him. And when that happened, what happened when God dwelled with Abraham? I mean, there was this covenant moment, which had to be incredible, you know, and when God struck a covenant with Abraham. But what happened to Abraham's life when God would dwell with him? He went from being a nomad with no home and, and virtually nothing to being so rich in flocks 
you know, of sheep and herds of cattle that, you, you know, the land couldn't contain. This is what happens when God dwells with us, when we allow that, right? And, but yet it was still so, so minuscule, right, compared to what God had with humankind before the fall. But, you know, he's, in, he's endeavoring to do that. He told Abraham that your seed is going to be 400 years, you know, after some enslavement and some issues are going to be brought forth again. And, and that's what happened, right? Israel came out of Egypt. And why did they come out? Moses said, you know, we need to go so we can worship God and he can dwell with us in the desert. And that's what they did. And they came out. And what did, what did God do with Israel? Did he dwell with them? Yeah, yeah. Not only did he rescue them, from their exile in Egypt. He then was with Israel. I mean, imagine being in the desert. Even though your sandals and clothes aren't wearing out, which is cool, you're still walking in the desert sun. That is super hot. It's scorching heat. But so what did God do? He covered them with a cloud by day to keep them cool. And at night, if you've been in the desert, it gets super cold really fast. And what did he do? He warmed them with a pillar of fire. But he wasn't done yet. That was still just him kind of showing I'm with you. But what he said was, build me a tabernacle. Build me a place. And he gave him the full design. And he said, and in this holy of holies, I will dwell. Between the cherubim, above the mercy seat, and the ark of the covenant, I will dwell there. So he wanted to continue to dwell with his people. And he did. And when God showed up in the holy of holies, it's called the Shekinah glory. All Israel knew that they were in the presence of, of Yahweh, of Jehovah, and his glory was there. And how did that affect Israel? How, what's it like when God dwells with human beings, even in a small place in the Holy of Holies? What does the presence of his glory do for a nation? He said, you are going to live in houses you didn't build. You're going to have the fruit of land that you didn't till, flowing with milk and honey. If you will just stay and let me be your God. In Exodus 25, God said, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. In Leviticus, Leviticus 26, God says, Regarding the promised land, I will make my dwelling among you. I will walk among you, and you will be, and, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. In Hebrews 9.1, it says, even during his first covenant, of course, after the tabernacle, Solomon builds the temple. Same thing. Shekinah glory of God comes to abide in that holy of holies in the temple. And Hebrews 9.1 says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Wow, an earthly place of holiness. In all the planet, there was this one little place where earth and heaven came together and God could dwell with his people. Imagine that. I mean, and so, you know, in, later on in Ezekiel, God's presence leaves the temple. <coughs> it's quite a scene, bunch of cherubim and spinning chariot wheels. It was quite a moment when the presence of God leaves. They go into exile 600 years later. They're still waiting for God to come back to the temple in Jerusalem. And does he? No. How does he come back? He comes back, the word became flesh, and dwelt, which is the word, tabernacled among us. And we beheld him full of grace and truth as the glory of the only begotten Son. The glory of God shows up in Christ, and he dwells among men. Now, what was that like? How was it when he was here? What happened? 
did it have an impact on the, on the world around, around him? Yeah, I mean, and he could rightly say, you know, I'm here and, the, and the, therefore the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because once again, a man, the last Adam, is recapitulating what happened when the first Adam was. He stands at the intersection of heaven and earth. And so he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm the gateway. And I will show you what it's like when at a human level, heaven and earth come together. This is what it looks like. You know, and of course, we know the rest of the story. Jesus Christ goes through his ministry. He goes to the cross and has victory over the rulers of the powers of darkness of this world and their proxies of you know, all empires. He is now then you know, resurrected in a new body. And so that's God saying, look, I'm starting to restore all things, just as I promised I would, just as I've always said, I'm going to start with the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, a physical body. Remember when Thomas said, look, uh, man, I'm not sure it's you. And he said, come on, come here, feel, feel my wounds. And, and they said, well, maybe, you know, maybe this guy's just a spirit. He's a ghost. He's, an, he's a disembodied reality. And he's just, you know, that's what happens after you die. You become a disembodied. Maybe that's what we're seeing. He said, no, come here. Touch me. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like I do. You know, and by the way, where's the fish? I'm hungry. He ate with them. He, he spent time with them. He was in a physical body, even though he was now in a resurrected, transformed physical body. And, and then, of course, he ascends. And he becomes Lord over all things to heaven and earth, right? God still desires, though, to dwell with human beings. Now, the man within whom he dwelled, Jesus Christ, is now exalted and he's ascended. So now what does God do? How does he dwell with human beings now? He sends the Spirit of Christ on the day of Pentecost. And what's the sign of it? Fire from heaven. An acceptable sacrifice has been given, which is Jesus Christ himself. And now God meets human beings again. And the sign of that is what? What did they do? They spoke in tongues. Now think about this. They're speaking a language that has its source where? Heaven. <laughs> it's a sign, folks. It's a sign that God has now reconnected heaven and earth in the form of human beings tapped in by the Spirit, and they are speaking a language whose source comes from outside of earth. They're showing you a token of what it's going to be like when this is fully consummated, which is when Jesus Christ comes back and we get what? A new body. But in the meantime, God has said, I will dwell with you and I will be your God and you will be my people. And he does that in how? The church. It is, you know, in Colossians it says it's Christ in you. And that's a you plural, by the way. Christ in you, plural, you, the body of Christ, you, the members of the body of Christ, you believers, when you gather together, if there's only two of you, I'm there, but I am among you, I am in you when you gather. And so the church now is called the temple, right? So is each of us because we all have connection to that spirit, that Holy Spirit of God, but the church is also the, the temple of the living God. It is where he dwells with people on the earth. If people of the earth, who are not familiar with the Shekinah glory of God, who want to be introduced to the God who desires to dwell with them, they are to be able to look to the church. And in the church, they, are able, they should be able to see this is a people in whom God dwells and with whom he walks and talks. In Ephesians 
it says, regarding the church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. This is a prayer to the church that we, when we come together and we are, you know, in fellowship together, filled with all the fullness of God. God once again can dwell with people. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Amen. And that's why it says in Hebrews 10, in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works in light of the hope. As we hold fast to this profession, we stir each other toward love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is this day drawing near? What are we looking for? When we talk about living in light of the hope, we are talking about a day drawing near. What is that day we're looking for, and how do we see it? If we see that day as being us in some ethereal existence about which we know nothing, in some disembodied state about which we can't conceive, for all eternity doing something we have no idea what we'll be doing, does that have any true appeal to us as human beings? It is not in our nature for that to really be truly appealing, to live in an ethereal state and a disembodied state doing something we can't even grasp. There is no anchor to your soul in that, but we don't have to think that way. That's the platonic and also the, almost the traditional Christian belief that when you die, you go to heaven. We can think in the way the scriptures have taught us that when we die, there will be a period of time if, if Christ doesn't come back while we're alive, and then we're going to be raised, we're going to be resurrected with a body fashioned like unto his, perfectly equipped, equipped and with the capacity, with the spirit of the living God animating that physical new body to take on the responsibility of standing again at the connection of heaven and earth. And I have no doubt we will have a mission. There's always been a mission for God's for God's uh, created beings. Always a mission. It's just, that's not a book that's been written yet, but that's part of our hope. We're going to be part of that book. We will. It's going to happen. <laughs> Might as well just like really wrap our heart around it now and think about it, that that is our destiny. That's where we're going, to, to a place and to a time when we will actually get to enjoy again God's good earth. The whole creation, according to Romans 8, groans and travails waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God, waiting for that day. The whole creation has been corrupted by the fall. How is that possible? Simple. The ruler, the overseer, the one who had been given dominion over God's good earth fell. 
left, departed, lost the spiritual connection and the capacity with which in their human bodies they could have exercised that dominion and been good stewards of God's good earth. And the whole earth went through a corruption and a fall because of that. And it knows it is under that. And it groans and travails. Think about that. Waiting. Like a, like a woman with pangs of birth waiting for that baby. That's how much the earth is in expectation of Jesus Christ's return and when things get set to right again. Do we expect it that way? Are we in that kind of just can't wait for this to come? And if we're not, it might be because we're not seeing it clearly. And instead, we're seeing either a, a lie that comes from the platonic philosophy or maybe we're, seeing, we're not seeing it because we're so captivated by the things of the world and we can't see past that. Maybe we need to zoom out like the astronauts and get the overview effect of realizing God's good earth will be restored. It will. And the power and authority of that restoration, restoration is in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who right now is our Lord and therefore our lives are completely secure in him and it doesn't matter i mean i know that the world's a mess okay we're living in a messy time right now but i assure you there have been many other messy times i don't think we're living like israel lived in egypt uh to be honest with you so we've been through this before as human beings but look we are if we see with the eyes of faith then we will see the unseen things they're not unseen because they're not real they're absolutely real they're just not seen with human eyes that don't have faith. By faith, we get to see clearly what is really God's good plan and wh what our destiny is. And by faith, we understand that this is all secured in the exalted and noble hands of the one who in the Garden of Gethsemane three times said, not my will, but your will, God. And he is our surety. He is the one who is guaranteed and, and will lay claim to our future. And, and it's by him that we look and we, we, we hope. It's, it's in that covenant relationship through Christ that we know God is going to once again be able to dwell completely with humankind so that his glory and his knowledge covers the earth like the waters cover the seas. That's what we're looking to. And we know that it's Jesus Christ who is the one who has the, the worthiness and the authority to usher this in. And in Revelation 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist, and the sea existed no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out from heaven, from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! The residence, the tabernacle of God is among human beings. He will live among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will exist no more. Or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the former things have ceased to exist. That is our destiny. We will be there, and that is our hope. And we need to pray that God will reveal the, in our hearts and give us eyes to see 
beyond the seen things into the unseen things and really lay claim to this and know that because of Jesus Christ, we are destined to go there. I wanted to close with a song and, and uh, listen to this with all of you. Thank you. Every piece. 